0: There is nowhere I feel safe. Nowhere. Nowhere. Do you know how it feels to have the President of the United States to target you? The President of the United States is supposed to represent every American. Not to target one, but he targeted me, Lady Ruby, a small business owner a mother, a proud American citizen who's standing up to help Fulton County run an election in the middle of the pandemic. Do you know what it feels like to have the president of the United States target you? Those were the haunting words of Ruby Freeman, an election worker in Fulton County, Georgia describing to the January 6th committee what it was like when Donald Trump and his allies spread grotesque lies about Freeman and her daughter, Wanda Shea Moss, accusing them of illegally dredging up suitcases of Biden ballots late at night to throw the 2020 election. None of it was true, of course. The FBI, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Atlanta, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation had all reviewed the video of Ruby Freeman and Wanda Moss counting ballots on election night and concluded none of it showed anything improper, just two humble election workers doing their job under difficult circumstances. It was yet more powerful testimony of the chaos that Donald Trump unleashed upon the country. But are the hearings breaking through? Are they penetrating a public preoccupied with soaring gas prices, punishing inflation, and scorching summer heat waves? We'll talk to two veteran news media figures, Julie Pace, executive editor of the Associated Press, and Steven Engelberg, editor of ProPublica, on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. Will to the best of my ability preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution
1: of the United States. So help me God. 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 So help me God.
0: I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative
2: Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Jan Kleidman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News.
0: And we are coming to you from the Web Summit Collision Conference in Toronto, Canada. Kleidman and I are both here as uh, moderators of media panels. So Victoria Bassetti, our other co-host, that uh, once again can't be with us here. Uh, but we've got lots to talk about and two really good guests for this episode. Starting out with uh, the January 6th committee, though, another day of really strong testimony on Tuesday. I thought hearing from Ruby Freeman and her daughter just about the personal cost to them. Of what happened because of Donald Trump's falsehoods about the election and the way they were targeted, the way they were faced death threats. Ruby Freeman talked about having the FBI tell her she had to move out of her house because she wouldn't be safe there, and that lasted for a couple of months, I believe. It was, I I thought, you know, the kind of thing that people will appreciate will absorb on some level and actually could make a difference.
2: You'd have to have a cold, cold heart not to feel for what these people went through. Um, and the thing that's important is that the committee tied this directly to Donald Trump. Let's remember that in that infamous phone call uh, that Trump made on January 2nd to Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State in Georgia and other Georgia state officials, He mentioned Ruby Freeman's name in some form 18 times. He called her a professional vote scammer, a hustler, a known political operative who stuffed the ballot boxes. Meanwhile, Rudy Giuliani, for his part, talked about her... You know, passing out dope like a like a drug dealer. Well,
0: thumb drives that were like vials of heroin and cocaine, yes. But no, I, mean, I think the yeah, quote was
2: also yeah. passing out dope yeah. like a drug dealer, yeah, it's my recollection yeah, yeah. of that. And so you can trace the threats, the death threats, the vile racist insults, the people showing up at, at these, you know, poor people's houses, knocking on their doors, pretty directly to those comments. Words have consequences. It is shocking that these were the words of the president of the United States. Right.
0: And to answer the question about whether it's breaking through and having an impact, I think the best evidence of that came the other day when Donald Trump himself said, well, maybe Kevin McCarthy shouldn't have, you know, dropped out of this committee and not let Republicans serve on it, of course two are, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, but there was some real frustration there. Trump is watching these hearings, of course he is, they're talking about him, so of course he's going to watch it, and he's, I think, think getting a bit bit nervous. I think
2: think Republicans are a bit shaken, I mean MAGA Republicans, uh, supporters of Trump, are a bit shaken by what they're seeing, because there's no counter-narrative, there's no uh, undermining of witnesses' testimony. There's no, you know, putting this into some sort of larger context that will make this less powerful. It's raw. It's real. It's out there. People are talking now, about it.
0: Raw, I, I, I don't know. I mean, well, yes, the, testi- the, the, tes- the testimony on, on Tuesday was, from, yeah. from, particularly from Wanda Moss and, and, and her mother. But there is still the slickness aspect of this. And, you know, purist that I am, I still do have a problem with the way they're doing this. It's been, you know, three weeks now, and they've yet to release any of the depositions. They keep playing little clips like, from depositions. I don't, I don't like
2: the idea of seeing videotaped deposition from witnesses and not getting to see them exactly. in person. And, and, when,
0: and when I say this on Twitter, you know, I get pushback. back. Oh, well, you're going to get it eventually. Wait, stop, stop harping on this. Not, no big deal. No, you don't throw out a charge like they did in the first primetime hearing when, remember, Liz Traney, this is now more than two weeks ago, said, you know, there were multiple members of Congress who asked for pardons. We've yet to see any backup to support that. You know, the comment that, you know, Donald Trump supposedly made that he wanted to, that maybe Pence deserved what he was getting and what people were shouting about him hang Mike Pence maybe that was that was right I mean look I'm not dismissing it I assume they have a basis for it but I want to know what it is you know we have over time spent a lot of time calling out Paul's who make charges without the evidence to back them up and you know clearly the committee has come forward with a lot of really strong stuff they we shouldn't take away from that that's very important but i don't like waiting to see evidence after charges have yeah. been made yeah, that, I, it strikes I, me as i, I as agree with
2: that although I, as you said i do think they exceeded expectations uh, i was not expecting yeah. the evidence that they produced the storytelling that they've been able to do and the weaving together uh, the narrative and making you know some of these kind of larger points as well as they did. I, I was not expecting that. That I, I think it's impressive and I think it's going to have real impact. Maybe, you know, look, we are living in a television age, uh, media age where things are sliced and diced and packaging is important. And they did hire James Goldston of ABC News to do this. Maybe they knew what they were doing. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah. Listen, and, and you know, I think uh, Norm Eisen on one of our earlier episodes made the point that these are hearings built for, the, you know, the streaming age, the TikTok right. age, right. the Twitter era, you know, where that's the way people and, and get news these days. Right. Little it's and, be, and you also, know, right. sliced and, and diced, you know, video clips right. and audio clips. And also,
2: right. th- these are not true investigative hearings. No. The investigation took place before the hearings. Right. Now they're telling the story. Mm-hmm. And it's different from, you know, you're, you're not going to get those aha moments that you got during the Watergate hearing. I, I think this is right, that Alexander Butterfield, who disclosed the existence of a White House taping system, was he asked about that in depositions before the hearings? Or did that uh, yeah, come yeah, out?
0: No, no, no. It was in a deposition, and then he, he repeated it okay. in public. All right. yes. But um, you know, some of us remember this stuff. <laughs> right. So, you know, just, uh, we keep talking about Watergate, because you know, we're both old enough to remember it, and also it was the 50th anniversary last week of Watergate. Of course, John Dean, who was the White House counsel, was the you know, the big witness who basically you know, exposed you know, Nixon's criminal conduct. The question we're we're waiting to see the answer is is Pat Cipollone the Ex, White House counsel under Donald question. Trump going to testify? Kind of cut right.
2: from the same cloth in some ways. I mean, they're, you know, kind of both well-tailored, uh, y- <laughs> right. y- you know, I, I can't remember. I-, I think John Dean had the tortoiseshell glasses. I don't think Cipollone does, yeah. but kind of very uh, c- kind of conservative looking and appearing lawyers. He has not yet testified. We don't know for sure that he will. I think uh, Liz Cheney brought this up. Right. She and I think
0: really wants him. She- and I think they have a sense that if they get him, it could be really devastating stuff. Now, the question is, he was the White House counsel. There are privilege issues when you're talking about the top lawyer in the White House, you know, disclosing communications he had with the president and that's something that has to be balanced out, I suppose. But if he is brought to the table, there's probably a lot He can say that we will all be obsessing over. Yeah, that's one thing that these hearings, I
2: think, have missed so far, is like dramatic moment of a
0: witness coming forward. Right, right,
2: right, right. Because either we haven't known, uh, people haven't really known a lot about these witnesses. They've been kind of lower profile, and they've been, Mm -hmm. you know, very important and 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 powerful witnesses, right. or people like Bill Barr, he was, a, mm-hmm. I think, a very strong and effective witness, but we sort of largely knew his story. Pat alone would be the surprise witness who would have the bombshells and, you know, a very powerful story to well, say. Well, stay
0: tuned to Skullduggery, because if and when he does testify, we will be all over it, as we will continue to be on the January 6th hearings. But we've got an even broader discussion to have with our two great guests. So let's get to it. We are now joined by two distinguished media executives. Julie Pace is the executive editor of the AP. Steven Engelberg is the editor-in-chief of ProPublica, former of the New York Times, we are coming to you from the Toronto Collision Conference, which might explain some of the ambient noise you are hearing in the background. But uh, Julie and Stephen, welcome to
3: Skullduggery. Thank you. And what the podcast can't capture is Stephen and I rolling our eyes at each other when we were called distinguished by you, but we appreciate it nevertheless. (laughs) No,
0: that was was an underestimation (laughs) of of who you folks are. So there's been a lot of media uh, navel gazing at this conference, which we want to talk about. But let's start out with kind of the news of the day, news of the week, January 6th committee hearings. We had another day of testimony. Julie, let's start out with you. Give me your sense of how these hearings are going, what you're learning, what we're all learning that we didn't know before, and how much of a difference you think they're making.
3: I think in terms of what we're learning, I think one of the things that I'm struck by as somebody who who covered, you know, the election, the aftermath of the election, and January 6th is how much I am learning that is new. And I think there's some power in pulling together this whole narrative um, that is quite compelling. I think that, you know, at a macro level, I think one of the things that that I am learning, and I think one of the things that the public is learning is you know, Yes, January 6th was, you know, a date that is, you know, clearly kind of emboldened in our minds now. But this was a process, right? I mean, right from Election Day on, there was a really sustained effort, kind of a multifaceted effort to try to block Biden from taking office from being declared the winner. And so it was it was bigger than I think what we saw play out at the Capitol. Very sustained. Again, not necessarily organized, um, not based in fact, clearly, but it was quite sustained. And I think that is striking.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's what we've seen is a much more elaborate conspiracy as, you know, even if it was the gang that couldn't shoot straight, as one of the witnesses said yesterday. But there was a lot more going on. Steve,
1: your take. I very much agree with Julie. I, I think this is a great lesson for journalists also who tell you, I don't want to look at that story. We already know it. I don't think you know any story ever. It's just a matter of digging in deeper. You know, I think we've more or less cracked the uh, history of the Lincoln administration, but I believe there are probably still things we're gonna learn about January 6th that will startle us. I, you know, I think there's a lot here that, that comes to mind as, as sort of new and startling. Uh, I think another thing is the extent to which the uh, people involved in this knew all along that it was illegal. To have that sort of spectacle of a law school former law school dean saying, well, okay, we're going to get maybe 7-2 at the Supreme Court before he concedes probably 9-0. I mean, that means he knows it is completely unmerited, and yet they're going forward with it. And, you know, I think another lesson for journalists in this is just because people are bumbling doesn't mean they're not worth covering and that they're not dangerous. You know, we, we look at that famous, you know, backdrop with Giuliani at the Four Seasons land uh, whatever that was landscaping. landscaping. Yeah, Four Seasons landscaping, before. and you went, oh my god, well obviously this is all just a big joke, they've lost every court case, and this and this and this. I, I think that was a little bit of a mistake. I, I, I think you got to take seriously what you're seeing. You know, Pompeo, I believe in day two or three, made a quote Freudian slipper. He said, well, we'll be a welcoming the second term of the uh, Trump administration and everybody went, ha, 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 he's just trolling us. No, we now know he was in on and they were in on things that were exactly aimed at this. So a lot of lessons here for journalists and for the public. And, you know, I'm a little bit of a a crazed optimist. So I think it's possible that this will change a few minds. I'm not saying it's going to change the nation's mind. I
2: I, want to pick up on that because uh, we're a bunch of reporters, journalists who follow this stuff closely you know, these new revelations kind of leap out to us. But for most people out there, they haven't been following it as closely. And we know, because this is a challenge we deal with on a daily basis, that people's views are baked in, that, you know, highly polarized partisan landscape. So I'm particularly curious whether you think there were kind of revelations or details or testimony that might have broken through with average Americans. I'm thinking, in particular, of you know, sort of the human toll of what was wrought uh, by Trump. So, tell us about that, Julie.
3: No, I think it's it's a it's a good question. I mean, I think there are a few things that are breaking through, whether they. Change people's minds who have hardened opinions. I think is another question, and I'm not sure we will know that you know immediately here. But I think there are two things. One is you mentioned the the human toll. Some of the stories that we've heard of you know election workers, people who are volunteering, you know, who have had their lives really upended by you know the barrage of attacks that they have faced. I think some of those moments have been quite powerful because they have been so human. The other thing that I think is notable is you have had on camera, you know, in their own words, people who are very closely associated with former president Trump talking about the fact that the election was not rigged. People like Ivanka Trump, right? I mean, people who are so closely associated with what we sort of have seen as this Trump movement saying actually like we don't think that that was real. I think there is some power in that, right? I mean, if you are if you are a Trump supporter, to you ha- you, I would assume you have to pause for a minute and say, that's, that's interesting. That's someone who I yeah, thought was part of part of the movement
2: here. I think that's absolutely right. Because until Tuesday's testimony, just about every single witness arrayed against Donald Trump were people who were basically in his inner circle. Yeah. And that was powerful.
0: Right. And, and to hear from Ruby Freeman on tape and her daughter, Wanda Shea Moss in person about what they experienced just because they were doing their job and then you juxtapose it with Rudy Giuliani you know talking about them exchanging thumb drives like they were vials of cocaine or heroin comparing these two sort of you know election workers just simple election workers trying to do their job and being compared to drug dealers by the lawyer for the president of the United States
1: I think we are consistently in journalism making crappy predictions about what voters are going to do. We don't really have a great feel for that. I think it's it's hard to say. I will point to this. There are a number of people in the state of Virginia who voted for Joe Biden for president and Youngkin for governor. Those people could be persuaded in several one of several directions, and they were persuaded that they would not vote for Trump. But what they heard the, uh, you know, Terry McAuliffe saying about how the schools are supposed to work, that offended them to the point where they voted for Yunkin. So it seems to me we're going to be sitting on this precipice as a country for a good while longer. And to take the attitude that everybody is, is locked in, I think uh, it, it is undermined by the evidence and the statistics that we have in the last elections.
0: We will see. Let's take a step back, and um, uh, Julie, I'm going to ask you a question that I asked you before when we were on a uh, panel. The same way, yeah. And Steve will be getting this fresh. I mean, basically, there's been a debate in media circles for some time now about how we cover the current state of our politics, and one side says that we are facing an existential threat to our democracy, and this has to supersede everything else in our coverage. All of our coverage has to be seen through the lens that we are on the precipice of possibly losing our democratic form of government. The other side says, look we still have to cover both sides of the political spectrum. We have to point out the foibles and the hypocrisies of Democrats as well as Republicans, and we can't look at anything through one lens, if for no other reason that that will fuel a perception that we are biased and we are carrying political water for one side. I want to get both of your perspectives on... Where you come down in this debate, Julie, editor of AP, you go first.
3: (laughs) And I thought about this a little bit more after we talked about it on the panel. You know, I would say a couple things on it. One, I think as a journalist... And, you know my news organization operates in a lot of countries around the world where democracy does not exist and so I know firsthand what it is like when there is not freedom of the press freedom of expression all of the things that come with with democracy so I think it is okay for us to have a bias toward any kind of system that upholds those kind of freedoms because I think it's just for the public good so I think okay. And I think we need to be clear about, you know, where the erosion of democracy is happening, right? I mean, it it is is coming, we've seen it from the Trump campaign and Trump supporters in the 2020 election. And I think that's just a fact. That's not a political statement here. I do think though, one of the things that I've been thinking about quite a bit is, yes, this is playing out quite acutely in the United States, but it is playing out elsewhere. You know, we are seeing, we're seeing a level of comfort with democracy eroding that I think is quite striking in a lot of places. You look at a country like India, right? I mean, some of the things that Modi has done in India, he is enormously popular. So I think one of our jobs as journalists is to try to not just call out what is happening, but to try to get a sense of why it is happening. I mean, why do we have major democracies around the world where there is a level of comfort with an erosion of that democracy? And it does get into, I think, then covering some of these other issues, right? A lot of this is rooted in economics. A lot of this is rooted in immigration. A lot of this is rooted in historical racism, right? So, so I don't see covering those things and putting attention there as being at the exclusion of covering democracy, because I actually think there's quite a link between them. But I, I, I think it would be a mistake for us to not kind of, like I said, dig, dig down at like what is behind what we're seeing and not just be the blinking, blaring light saying that this is happening.
1: Yeah. yeah, I completely agree with that. A couple of things come to mind from your question. Like disagreement on this yeah. Yeah, podcast, I, I, by yeah, the, the way. And and I, I, so, that, I, we'll, we'll definitely try. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I think, first of all, the moment we stop covering the foibles of one party because the other party is the problem, we have lost all credibility. We have then become the Fox News or MSNBC to a great extent, uh, and nothing we say, I think, really sinks in because it's obvious that we're in the tank for one side or another. So I think we've got to cover both sides, but that doesn't mean that we give both sides equal weight. I think we are capable of getting into a story and saying that uh, Stephen Colbert's production crew getting arrested is not the same as the insurrection <laughs> and I, I mean, people people were saying, well, you know, yeah. both sides did it, you know. So, no, we, we are capable of assessing proportion. I think that's a very important part of our work. To build on what Julie was saying, uh, I was a foreign correspondent in Poland from 1990 to 93 when they transitioned from communism. Uh, to democracy, Uh, and I've followed things Polish ever since because, you know, I sort of have an interest in it, can read a bit of the language. What has happened in Poland is exactly what some people want to happen here, which is in a parliamentary system, a minority of voters have put in place a government that represents a minority of the people, and they are then cleaning out the courts, the media, the rest of it to build a different kind of country. And I think if we're on that kind of a road, and we may be, if you look at the Texas uh, state Republican Party, they're saying, let's have an electoral college system so the legislature could be 100% Republican. You could could elect the electors by majority. They they
0: want to scrap the popular vote in Texas. Right, scrap the popular vote so so that the entire
1: legislature in Texas wouldn't be largely Republican, it would be entirely Republican. That is minority rule. That is something that we need to cover. And there's not a both sides to that. The Democrats aren't trying to do that, which isn't to say that when they gerrymander or they break the campaign funding laws or they tell lies that we shouldn't call them out, that's good for, frankly, them because they shouldn't be lying and good for our credibility. So that's where I come out.
0: So Chris Lick, the new head of CNN, was reported the other day to have instructed his staff or made a suggestion to his staff to stop referring to Trump's big lie. That he said... We can talk about Trump's lies, but the big lie is a Democratic talking point. And every time you, CNN anchors, reporters, do that, you are echoing the talking point of one political party. Is he right?
1: I think the horse uh, may have gotten out of the barn on that one. But I understand where he's coming from. We wrote a long story about President Trump's... um, Misstatements and maltruths about the election without using the word big lie. So it is possible to do it. The reporters felt strongly it was a good idea. I frankly, you know, was willing to go along with it, but I didn't feel as strongly. I think everybody in America knows what we're talking about here, and I don't think that's a Democratic po- talking point. This is a big lie, and if these hearings have proved anything, the elements of the offense, if you will, of a lie is it has to be completely false, and you have to know it's false. And he did.
2: Julie, the AP. Uh tends to be uh, conservative in some ways um, and very bound by standards what is your policy about referring to Trump's lies? Is it a word that you use, for example, in an AP headline? How do you um, instruct uh, your journalists uh, to write about this and to use that language? Well,
3: I happen to think being bound by standards is a good thing in journalism, so I I will uh, take that as a compliment. It was. It
2: was meant as a compliment. (laughs) Look,
3: we, uh, we have used Lie. We've used it and we use it sparingly, but we have used it around the election lie. We have said and we say repeatedly that it is a lie. Trump has lied that um, the election was beset by widespread fraud. Uh, The couple other instances where we used it, we used it when he um, continued to push the birther narrative around Obama, which was a proven. Falsehood. He knew it was. We had reporting that he knew it was. He continued to push it. It does get, I do think, Michael and I talked about this a bit earlier. I do think lie is tricky because I do think that intent Mm -hmm. is part of it. And I think that it's really tricky for journalists to kind of try to glean intent, especially when there's not reporting to, to back that up. I also think that sometimes we as journalists get really caught up in the, is it a lie? Is it a falsehood? Is it a misstatement? Is it a mistruth? And we lose sight of the fact that There's a next step. No matter what you call it, there's a next step, which is if it's if this is inaccurate, if this is a lie, what is the truth? What is accurate? And are we doing enough to explain that to people? So I've tried to shift our conversation to that space. If we we call it a lie, that's fine, but it doesn't do a lot of good unless we actually explain what happened. Right. So we have gone to great lengths in our coverage, and I'm very proud of the way that we covered the election and in January 6th, we've gone to great lengths in all of our coverage to make sure that anytime we say that something was inaccurate or a lie, we explain what the truth was. Because again, I just think we sometimes lose sight of what our our actual objective is, which is to inform the public, not to decide that we've got the buzziest headline. I
2: I couldn't agree more with that approach. I, I think doing it sparingly is right. I think the danger is that when you use language that people will see, no matter what you say, they will see it as incendiary. They will see it as taking a position and biased. And it is, just to your point, Steve, maintaining that credibility, that trust with a as wide an audience as possible is key to our survival.
3: And I think that a lot of this comes down to, let's not create barriers for entry. I want Trump supporters to consume AP journalism and and come away from it with an understanding of the facts. The same way I want Biden supporters to read AP journalism and come away with an understanding of the facts. I actively want to go out and reach those voters. So I don't want to create a barrier of entry where someone says, I'm not going to read that. Look, they're so clearly biased, right? That doesn't mean giving both sides equal weight. It 100% does not. But don't don't create that barrier to entry where they don't even feel like they're going to get a fair shake.
1: But yeah, let, me, let, let, me, let me pose a challenge because yeah. I'm thinking about this and I, I totally agree with it. But, but imagine we're having this conversation in about 1962. And um, we all work for the New York Times. And we, somebody has said in the South, The way that they refer to black people as African-Americans or whatever they said at the time, that's just offensive to a lot of the readership in the South. I mean, you can't do that. That shows a bias on the question of civil rights. I think we would all say, yeah, well, that's your problem. And I wonder sometimes if we've gotten to the point with some of these things where Trump supporters, or at least some of them, are demanding things that are not right and that we shouldn't do.
3: And I think we can never compromise on the facts, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there is no scenario in which we would say, well, we're going to give this point of view equal weight if it's factually inaccurate. I, I mean, that's definitely, <laughs> that would be a real abdication of our responsibility. Right. But again, I think things like, you no. Know, I say this a lot in our in our newsroom. Uh, you know, sometimes adjectives are not our friends, right? It's things like that. It's the adjectives. It's the colloquialisms that we use. That that's what I'm talking about Load, in terms of loaded, loaded, language. loaded language. That those are barriers to entry, as opposed to representing points of view that are inaccurate or um, you know have been have, have been proven to be again not just inaccurate but but racist, sexist, etc.
0: Subtext here is a perception of media bias and you know trump folks will point to things like the steel dossier that was promoted by many news organizations for a long period of time that i think there's now a consensus it a document that has been almost entirely discredited or the handling of the Hunter Biden story, which, you know, during the campaign was dismissed after the Democrats put together a letter of intelligence officials saying this has the hallmark of Russian disinformation, even if there was no evidence that the Russians had anything to do with the surfacing of of Hunter Biden's laptop. And so, you know, the question is, you know, Do you think the media has gone far enough in making it clear there are things that were promoted by the left that
3: turned out to be largely bullshit? Personally, I I don't. I think that I think that you know I cover I covered the start of the I covered the Trump campaign in 2016 and then the start of the presidency as a reporter, as a White House correspondent and you know sometimes it was like it was like a snowball rolling down a hill right i mean there was this momentum that was building and every scoop was built on another scoop and there were constant leaks and it took on this life of its own and i do think if you go back and you look at some of the reporting that happened during that period you know it has been proven to be inaccurate or at least overblown and i do think that we lose credibility when we don't go back and say hey we got that wrong right or that was misconstrued or we simply learned more as we continued to do our job, because this is a constant process, as we talked about with January 6th. It's a constant process of gathering new information. And I do think that there is some credibility, and again, saying, hey, yeah, that, that, that turned out to not be what we thought it was at the time.
1: I mean, I think what comes up here, and here I'm gonna use the word diversity in its broadest possible sense. I think that the diversity of viewpoint and opinion on political events within newsrooms is pretty narrow. I'll give you an example. Trump gets up and says Wuhan could be a lab leak. Everybody just rolls their eyes and says, oh, Donald Trump, he hates China. It must be a bunch of nonsense. And to my knowledge, hardly anybody said, you know, it is weird that the only laboratory that studies this particular thing is in Wuhan and that the bats that we're talking about live hundreds of miles away. That's, that's at least weird. No, no, That took months before anybody gave that the slightest credibility. There has not, to my knowledge... We still don't know the answer no, to this question. No, we don't know the answer. Do we? No, but yeah. I, mean, I will say,
2: you know, at yeah. Yahoo News, we did an investigation of that question. We had our intelligence reporter at the time no. had multiple sources inside the intelligence community giving that theory a lot of credence. Right.
1: Or at least it's, more credence it's,
2: than we were in the popular culture. It sank like a stone. Yep. I like was you know trying to get it out through our PR team on social media. No one wanted to touch that.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, I think there are other things in that category. Let's take those intelligence officials who wrote that letter that turned out to be pretty, I think, significant in some political context. To my knowledge, nobody has ever backed them all up against the wall and done on-the-record interviews saying, well, what do you say now? What are your feelings about this do, 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 you, know. you know what they'd say they say well, we didn't say it was Russian disinformation. we just said it had
0: the hallmarks of Russian disinformation right. which is a little too cute by half let yeah. me take yeah.
2: that issue uh, and um, turn it to something that I think is is related to it it's sort of because um, I think there's a there's a there's a kind of a groupthink uh, no. problem um, in in journalism it's not just in journalism, I think it's a more j- wider phenomenon. But I think part of that is the uh, social media habits of reporters. We were talking about this on our panel earlier today, Twitter, where so many reporters today, you know, get uh, not just a lot of their information, and there's a lot of valid stuff on Twitter, like links to AP stories or links to ProPublica stories. Uh, but there also is a kind of a conventional wisdom that kind of congeals on Twitter, and that I think has a outsized influence on the way people in newsroom think and come up with stories. That's got to be a challenge for you, Julie, um, at the AP, the way it is. I think for anyone who
3: leads a newsroom, it is hugely challenging because you're right. You know, the the narrative is formed while the event is still happening. <laughs> and you you don't get that minute to just sit back and you know, think in your own mind about what you want to say about something. You're already being sort of peppered with what the analysis is. Again, it's happening in real time as somebody's speaking or an event is is unfolding. And I, I will often find myself, myself you know, someone will say to me, have we thought about doing a story with this kind of angle? And I'm like, I also am on Twitter. I also see that that is, you know, what the narrative is. Don't, you know, don't worry. I I, I see it. Look, I'm not naive enough to think that I'm going to get my newsroom to get off of Twitter, nor do I even really want to. I think that there's value to the conversation when it's when it's uh, done constructively. Certainly we use it for, you know, reporting and, and sourcing. So I'm not trying to get people off of Twitter. But I do think, you know, I wish I had a solution to how you can both be present in that space and also not be totally shaped by it, because I think that the other element of this is that you know, there is a very. And this, this, <laughs> I will, I will use both sides for this one moment here. You know, there is at, on both sides there is very aggressive harassment that happens yeah. of our journalists if you do reporting that goes counter to the narrative, and it particularly impacts female journalists journalists of color and they will get harassed by you know real people real people with lots of followers and it is intense and it can be dangerous and it can trickle into actual like physical safety concerns for them and i i I worry about that piece of it how fast it can spiral from this is the narrative to a journalist you know is being really severely harassed again i don't have a solution to it but i do worry about it
1: right i mean you think about some of the examples we mentioned in this conversation in the early day, when the early days, when the you know sort of narrative was congealed, to be a serious, let's say, the White House reporter at AP and put up a tweet that said, "I don't know this Bo Biden thing. I think we should look at it. I mean, let's not let's not prejudge Hunter, Hunter Biden, Biden. I'm sorry, yeah. uh, this Hunter Biden thing. Let's not prejudge. That's that's po- well, we haven't seen the evidence yet. That alone would get raining abuse on your head." And so I think people are aware of that. They don't want to be called out. They don't want to be canceled. So let's stick, let's color within the lines as set by Twitter, which are very, very narrow lines. That's, I think, a big part of the problem.
0: Steve, you uh, made reference before to the issue of diversity, and there's been a lot of talk in media circles about having more diverse newsrooms, normally that usually involves talking about more women, more people of color, more LGBT people. But what about diversity of thinking more broadly? How many evangelical Christians do you have in the AP newsroom? More Uh, than most. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. And, And I mean, is there, you know, should there be an effort to get, to bring diverse perspectives Into uh, news organizations that might not sort of fit the mold that some people
3: who promote diversity. What? I know. I completely agree. Look, I think that you know, we if we're going to talk about diversity, we need to think about diversity in the broadest possible sense, right? One of the things that I really love about working at the AP, if you look at it just from the just from the U.S. perspective, don't even take into account you know the the global reach of what we do, but look at it from the U.S. You know, I have journalists in all fifty states, and they are not parachuting into red states from you know liberal coastal communities. They are raising their families there. They own property there. They are dealing with, you know, local issues in these places. They are are part of those communities, and it makes a difference. I, I can tell you the conversations that I have with them, the perspectives that they bring, even if it's just as simple as like, I mean, we knew about what was happening about the, the kind of conversation at school boards, right, very early because it was happening in the school boards that they were at the meetings they were attending, right? It makes a difference. I wish that more newsrooms has that, had that opportunity to have those kind of conversations. We still have a long way to go, I think, in making sure that we have more of those perspectives and that those perspectives are trickling up into the coverage, but it it does make a difference. So
2: going to our point before about whether these hearings are breaking through, you know, we we have a uh, a reporter on our staff, John Ward, who was raised in an evangelical tradition, and um, he texted me yesterday and said, you know, I'm struck in these hearings by the number of these witnesses who are bringing up their faith. You know, it was Greg Jacob, I think Mark Short, you know, they were talking about prayers. Then you had Rusty Bowers Yesterday, talking about how his, Mormon, how his Mormon faith, you know, informed his, his views about his duty to the Constitution. You know, you have it with Pence, of course, and Rafsenberger as well, who wrote about this in his book. And he said, I think I want to write about that. And, you know, honestly, I kind of noticed it, but it didn't ac- really occur to me as a story to be done. I don't think we would have done it if we hadn't had John Ward on our staff, and that story is going to connect with an audience that we might not otherwise well, connect think with. About
3: that. I mean, I think that's so interesting. Like, faith, religion is such a part of so many people's lives. I mean, it is one of the most important parts of so many people's lives. And I don't think that that is reflected in kind of our national coverage, right? And I, now you can think of all kinds of reasons why that is the case. But think about the disconnect that okay. alone creates, right, in our ability to gain trust and, and make sure that we're We are representing, you know, who our readers, who our audiences are.
1: Well, and I would also just add another group that I think is underrepresented. A decent number, though not a large number of Americans, serve in the military. Very few of those people ever end up coming home and working in a news organization. I think that perspective is missing. Uh, You know, having said all of this, let's be clear. Um, On the way the industry defines diversity, uh, the record has been atrocious. We talk about people of color, women until recently, although I will say uh, the, the day is coming where every news organization will be majority women. So we have solved that problem probably for reasons that I, I, I hesitate to point out. But,
0: well, go ahead. You, know, <laughs> you, know, I, you got I, me there. Huh? I,
1: well, no, I think unfortunately what is happening is that the pay is falling, and this has become a more mission-driven profession. Um, there's very little chance you're going to get either, you know, fabulously wealthy or whatever out of this and so uh, historically I think women have been more willing to gravitate toward things that are that don't look like that you know all I can tell you is every single time I go to a journalism school it's now seventy five percent women I mean I don't know Julie if you have a, a view on what's causing that but
3: uh, no I, I mean I definitely think that you are seeing more well you're seeing more women get into the business which I think is fabulous you're also seeing more women being promoted which yep. I think is is a, a Overdue uh, change, but you're right. Overall, when we talk about diversity, whether it's whether it's gender diversity or cultural diversity, I mean, you know, I take I, I take this on at AP too. We are so far from where we need to go. We've made pretty significant progress, but we are so far, and there are. Again, real moments that I can point to when having a diversity of opinion and a diversity of experience in a conversation makes the coverage better, right? Purely from a, you know, are we covering the news in the most accurate way possible, and reflecting the diversity of this country or or in, you know, other countries that we cover? It, genuinely makes a difference and I I I, I want to make sure like we're we're not losing sight of that fact that it's not diversity for diversity's sake. No. Like it makes a difference in the coverage.
1: My favorite example of this and someday I, I may even try and write a book about it. I've thought it would be a perfectly boring journalism book. In the 1980s and 90s there were two narratives afoot about policing and communities. You could listen to rap music and get a viewpoint which none of us credited which is that we are you know we this community are under siege we are being beaten and attacked at all from all sides or you could take the sort of you know basically metro dailies and newspapers that covered the cops and began each day by picking up stuff at the cop shop and started from the perspective that the cops are probably doing the right thing most of the time I think if you had a more diverse staff in that period of history, your coverage of the police department would have been different. We wouldn't have had to wait for the cell phone error to really know what was happening on our streets because there would have been people experiencing it. Back
2: in, back in the day, you had reporters at major metropolitan newspapers who worked out of the police offices Chef. Uh, Chef. You know, and were sometimes described as half cop, half reporter. you know. Yeah, Al, that's a,
0: Al Lewis. Lewis. Al Lewis. Al Lewis. the byline bro- on the very first Watergate broke story. Broke the Watergate story, <laughs> yeah, sort, <exactly>. of. <laughs> sort of. Exactly. <laughs> right. Phoned it
1: in yep. from police yeah. headquarters. But that was that yeah. is within yeah. living memory. Yeah. And yep. so... And again, talking about your notion that people at the AP live in communities and therefore have that, you know, sort of lived experience to draw on. We've done the same thing at ProPublica to a lesser extent, but about, you know, I would say close to 40 percent of our staff now does not live in uh, New York or Washington. And it has changed our coverage 100 percent. We are hearing things that we didn't know before at a much earlier time.
0: One last question for you, Julie, as uh, as the head of a worldwide news organization, there's a war in Ukraine right now that has been dragging on, uh, you know, all sorts of horrific uh, images are emerging and uh, equally very strong comments from about war crimes and genocide. I want to get a sense of how you are covering this both from the perspective of when we get as in any war, all sorts of allegations on all sides that are often very difficult to verify. And then also the safety of your reporters on the ground.
3: It has been an extremely challenging story to cover because it's so complex. There is the physical safety of our teams on the ground. You know, This is a war that's unlike the wars we've covered in recent memory because you know, typically if you're covering Iraq or Afghanistan, you're embedded with the military, right? You're on the side that's coming in. In this case, we were on the side that was being attacked. The unpredictability of it, the you know inability to know what was the right way to keep our staff safe was really, really difficult. And obviously, you know, our team in Mariupol in particular found themselves in a really... Difficult situation under siege. Um, I'm just extremely proud of the work that they've done in In Mariupol. This is extraordinary work. Mstislav Chernov and uh, Zhenya Malekha and a fixer, a local young woman, Vasilisa Stepanenko, um, who worked with them. They were in Mariupol. All Ukrainian. Knew the knew the city incredibly well um, and got caught in the siege of Mariupol and were unable to get out um, for about three weeks and continued to report. And the I really credit the work that they did with, I think, capturing for the world what was actually happening. You know, their images were the images of the pregnant woman on the stretcher who was getting taken out of the maternity ward. Uh, their images uh, you know, were the ones that were showing people, I think, the real human toll of this. And then at the same time that they're caught in this, they get caught in a Russian disinformation campaign where the Russian ambassador to the United Nations is on the floor of the Security Council talking about misinformation and and waving their pictures around and calling them fake news. So we're dealing with their safety there, dealing with a Russian misinformation campaign there. You know, it's incredibly, it's incredibly complex. Um, I think that the one thing, you know, that I have taken away from the whole experience is that you know we' are, we are going to have to make a commitment to covering Ukraine for the long haul. So we have a if anybody knows anybody, we're hiring for a chief correspondent in Ukraine right now. But I think you know this is a story that's going to go on for some time, and I want to make sure that we're committed to it, even if it does have that feeling of dragging on or you know the public attention waning. you know this is this has been a really horrific scenario that's unfolded in the middle of Europe.
0: I'm so glad we're closing on this note because, you know, look, we journalists take a lot of flack and we talk among ourselves, and you know it often seems you know insular and um, removed from what is on the minds of many people. but what's going what your reporters did in Maripol is exactly why, what, why journalism is important, remains important, bringing the truth to a world. That otherwise wouldn't get it if people like that weren't doing it. So I want to thank you and your reporters for your work, Steve, as well. Thank you both. It's been a great discussion. Thanks a lot for joining us.
3: Thank you. Thank you.